You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. To find out more about the journal and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. Welcome to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. In 2003, a randomized trial sponsored by the Maternal Fetal Medicine Units Network ushered in an era of optimism for an approach towards reducing the risk of recurrent preterm birth. In this trial, weekly intramuscular 17-hydroxyprogesterone caproate was demonstrated to be associated with a significant reduction in the risk of recurrent preterm birth in a high-risk population. A subsequent repeat randomized trial of 17 OHP for recurrent preterm birth prevention has recently been completed. This trial is the prolonged trial, 17 OHP to prevent recurrent preterm birth in singleton gestations, a multi-center international randomized double-blind trial. This trial studied a population of women with a prior singleton spontaneous preterm birth. Women were enrolled at 93 centers, 41 in the United States and 52 outside of the United States, between 16 weeks gestational age and 20 weeks, six days gestational age in a two to one treatment to control ratio to receive weekly 250 milligram intramuscular 17 OHP or an inert oil placebo. The treatments were continued until delivery or 36 weeks gestational age. The investigators evaluated two co-primary outcomes in this study. The first was spontaneous preterm birth less than 35 weeks gestational age. The second was a neonatal morbidity composite index. This composite index included any of the following, neonatal death, grade three or four interventricular hemorrhage, respiratory distress syndrome, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, necrotizing enterocolitis, or proven sepsis. The study was designed and powered using an expected preterm birth rate in untreated women of approximately 30% to demonstrate a 30% reduction in preterm birth less than 35 weeks and a 35% reduction in the neonatal morbidity composite index. At the completion of the study, the population enrolled was described as 87% Caucasian, 12% had greater than one prior spontaneous preterm birth, 7% smoked cigarettes, 89% were married or lived with a partner, and the pre-pregnancy BMI in the placebo and control group were both 23 Less than 2% of the patients enrolled in this trial were found to have a cervical length less than 25 millimeters at the time of enrollment. There were no differences between the placebo and the treatment population. In evaluating the patients at the completion of the study, there were no significant differences in the frequency of spontaneous preterm birth less than 35 weeks gestational age, with a rate of preterm birth in the treatment arm of 11%, versus 11.5% in the placebo group. Additionally, there was no difference in the neonatal morbidity index 
5.6% in the treatment arm and 5% in the placebo arm. The authors found no differences in the frequency of fetal or early infant death between the two groups at 1.7% and 1.9% in the treatment and placebo arms respectively, period. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Sean Blackwell on behalf of the study investigators to review the prolonged study and describe its implications in the approach to recurrent preterm birth. Dr. Blackwell is professor and chair of the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the McGovern Medical School, University of Texas Health. Dr. Blackwell, thank you very much for joining us today on another edition of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Well, thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for doing this over the weekend. Very excited to talk about the prolonged study today. As you and all the authors know, 2003, the MEES randomized controlled trial had suggested that 17Ps associated with a significant reduction in the risk of recurrent spontaneous preterm birth. After that study, what was then the rationale or the impetus for performing the prolonged study? Well, the prolonged trial was required by the FDA as a confirmatory study as part of the approval for 17P to be used commercially. So the sponsor at the time of 17P in order to have 17P be available for for use, presented the information to the FDA, and the FDA gave what's called a conditional approval with the idea that the prolonged study would confirm the findings of MIS as well as provide more robust data regarding safety. Is that a pretty common approach to how new medications are brought to clinical practice? That's a great point that you're making, Bill, because it's not very common. More often than not, in order to get a new approval, there's got to be two studies that are well-conducted, well-performed, that show treatment benefit. Because 17P was targeted for use in women with a prior spontaneous preterm birth, and the number of women that are eligible for 17P is relatively low, it was considered under an orphan drug approval process. So the process is slightly different, and that also sort of makes this whole issue around 17P now a little bit more complicated. So how was the prolonged study designed? What was its underlying study design, and and were there similarities or differences related to prior studies on 17P? So much like almost all drug approval studies, the sponsor has to communicate and coordinate with the FDA for designing a study that's going to meet its requirements. So the fundamental in patient population, study protocol, and study aspects were largely based off of the MEES trial. So it required identifying women with a prior spontaneous preterm birth. Women were required to have documentation of that prior spontaneous preterm birth. The timing of 17P use was identical to what was described in the MEES study. 
the dosing was similar, and then the study protocol itself for follow-up. The only differences, well, I want to say only, but the fundamental differences are with Prolong, the primary outcome for the trial was a co-primary outcome of preterm birth less than 35 weeks and a neonatal composite morbidity. In the MEES trial, the primary outcome was preterm birth less than 37 weeks. And when the FDA worked with the sponsor to design the trial, my understanding is, is that it was important for them to want to have an outcome that was related towards health outcomes, or and that's why they insisted on neonatal morbidity and mortality. These requirements then drove a sample size for Prolong to be significantly different than MEES. The MEES study was originally designed to have 500 total subjects. Because Prolong was going to require assessing preterm birth less than 35 weeks and neonatal morbidity and mortality, a much higher sample size was going to be required, slightly over 1,700 women. In addition, there was the plan to try to identify or try to rule out a doubling of the risk of fetal or early infant loss. Thanks for that great background. The Prolong study, as of course the readers will see, was a randomized controlled trial, and placebo and medication were set up in a two-to-one ratio, similar to the MEES trial. Dr. Blackwell, can you describe the setting for the clinical sites in this study? Yes. For the Prolong study, the initial recruitment started in 2009. And the FDA set a requirement that at least 10% of women enrolled in the trial needed to come from the U.S. In order to do a trial of this magnitude and in the climate that 17P had already been in use for six years, it was clear that a large percentage of the sample were going to need to come from outside the United States. The U.S. recruitment sites were locations across the United States who would be willing to participate in a placebo-controlled trial. And these largely included places where they didn't have ready access to 17P. Outside of the United States, the sponsor worked with their CRO to identify locations where there was not widespread adoption of 17P as well. And that's how the trial was largely done with at least 60% of its recruitment coming from the Ukraine and from Russia. A, a lot of these large multi-center studies are, are based out of sort of academic or medical school institutions. Was that similar in the prolonged study or did that end up being a different scope of the clinical sites? Especially as you make a point that part of it may be driven in the U.S. from access to to 17P. I think that's one of the major challenges with the prolonged trial was that if we look at the time course, the MEES study was published in 2003. ACOG came out with a an advisory stating that it would be reasonable to use uh, progesterones in 2003. 
somewhere around 2005, 2006, Ness and colleagues published their findings of a survey of board-certified maternal fetal medicine specialists, and they noted that two-thirds of all of these physicians surveyed were already using progestogens in the United States. So therefore, by the time 2009 came around, a lot of people were already using 17P and some were using vaginal progesterone. So at academic university-based medical centers, they had a buy-in and a use in these medications already, and they had ready access to it. And that's why the recruitment was driven to locations where there was a different access. And then, just to make it a little bit harder, once 17P was approved in 2011, that affected even more the ability to recruit in the United States. And if you look at the time course of recruitment for Prolong in the United States, you definitely see a decrease after the FDA approval in 2011. You talked already some about the, the primary outcome from the Prolong study um, being preterm birth less than 35 weeks, and you had a co primary outcome of a neonatal composite index. Can you describe the neonatal composite index a little bit more? And were there other secondary outcomes in the study? Sure. The composite neonatal morbidity and mortality index was chosen to be quite similar to the original MEES trial. It included neonatal death, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, respiratory distress syndrome, necrotizing enterocolitis, intraventricular hemorrhage, grade three or grade four, or proven sepsis. Secondary outcomes included these individual parameters, as well as NICU admission, birth weight, retinopathy of prematurity, and then certainly some of the other secondary obstetrical outcomes were preterm birth at less than 32 weeks, the treatment for preterm labor, use of antenatal corticosteroids, as well as the development of maternal gestational diabetes. The other thing to mention is is that there were, you know, the study was specifically designed to gain additional information about pregnancy loss because one of the reasons for that was that MEES is a relatively small sample, less than 500 women, and these outcomes are relatively rare. And there was the concern for a safety signal in the MEES trial related towards miscarriage. So the prolong also was quite targeted to gain information about fetal or early infant death, which would be stillbirth, miscarriage, and then early infant death and a neonatal death. Certainly. And those would be important because it could potentially mask or show differences in your rates of preterm birth if those patients were not able to be measured with that outcome. Correct. So in the prolonged study, what would you describe as the most important and primary finding in that trial? I think the primary finding is that the prolonged study did not confirm the robust treatment effects seen in the MEES trial. 
it was designed as a confirmatory study and it did not do that. At the same time, it does not disprove or it does not contradict with the Mies study related to efficacy because in the end, it was an underpowered trial. Due to several reasons, there was a much lower rate of recurrent preterm birth in the prolonged trial. With that much lower rate, that then made it a situation that with the sample size that we had, we're not able to rule out a type 2 error. If you do an analysis after the trial using the observed event rates and making the same assumptions, in order to have a 90% power for preterm birth less than 35 weeks, you'd need 3,600 women, which is much bigger than the prolonged trial. And to uh, rule out a type 2 error for neonatal composite outcome, you'd need over 6,000 women. So I would categorize prolong as inconclusive related towards efficacy with 17P. The second most important finding from the prolonged trial is information related to, to safety. If you look at the combination of those measures that I mentioned before, miscarriage, stillbirth, or early infant death, the event rates for pregnancy loss overall were much lower than expected and not different between groups. And the relative risk was under two, which was one of the important safety measures that was described as part of the trial. Were there other important secondary findings? You mentioned the safety aspects and the, the pregnancy loss issues. Were there any other important secondary findings that, that you would like to highlight? I think there are two other things that that are, are of note. First, it is related towards safety, related to the frequency of gestational diabetes. The overall rates of gestational diabetes were quite low in this patient population, and there were no differences. There, there's been some discussion and some information from observational studies that implied an increased risk of diabetes in women who were receiving 17P, although that had not been noted in the placebo-controlled randomized trials. I think the other finding which is of note is that there were multiple pre-planned subgroup analyses that were part of the statistical analysis plan, and one of them being looking at treatment effects between women enrolled in the United States and women enrolled in other places. And the idea being that in order to better understand how to take care of women in the United States, you'd want to look at that particular subgroup and that these women might be quite different than women enrolled outside the United States, which we've certainly seen in other trials and in other clinical situations. In fact, the preterm birth rate in women delivered in the United States in Prolong was much higher than those who delivered early outside the United States. And there were some non-significant trends for treatment efficacy with preterm birth less than 32 weeks and preterm birth less than 35 weeks for women uh, in the United States who were treated with 17P. I want to emphasize that these are 
trends which are underpowered to provide confirmatory information about efficacy, but they are interesting. Both the relative risks are under one, and there's also these same trends for neonatal composite morbidities. Much like other sub-analyses from other trials, these analyses should be considered exploratory and hypothesis-generating. Would it be fair to say that, that some of these subgroups that you're describing, while we, we shouldn't use those to say this, this is efficacious or not, are important things to look at when we're trying to understand the apparent discrepancies in results between several very large studies? Yes, I, I think it, there's a couple points in addition to the one that you just made. One of the points is that not all women with a prior spontaneous preterm birth are the same. So there can be a pretty wide severity of disease spectrum that you can see inside the United States and outside the United States, and then certainly within different populations within the United States. I think that that's important. I think that that's driven by the fact that preterm birth is a syndrome more so than an individual disease, and it's more likely than not that a singular therapy is not going to block or prevent all preterm births. You know, and it's noted that even in the MEES trial, up to 37% of women who were treated with 17P, even though there was tremendous benefit, 37% of women still delivered preterm. So I think all those things need to be taken into consideration. And the last point I would make about that is this is where the role of systematic reviews and meta-analyses, either pooled or those with individual patient data, need to come into play where we're able to combine the information from these trials and potentially do a deeper dive into which subgroups may have particular benefit with 17P if there are some that can be identified. I might, if we can, go back a little bit to when you were describing the primary outcome of preterm birth less than 35 weeks and saying that that the expected rate of preterm birth was significantly lower, thus influencing the potential type 2 error. And you said there are several reasons that might play into that. We discussed, one, that the design of this study and prior studies have a, have a different international appearance. Was there anything else in the patient population makeup that was unique to this study that you think may have influenced this baseline rate of preterm birth? Yes, that's an excellent point. So you mentioned that women that were enrolled in Russia and Ukraine, which is where 60% of subjects came from, had just a lower rate of recurrent preterm birth. And you can identify that by looking at the rate of preterm birth in the placebo group. So I I do think that that's a major influencer in the lower event rate. I think even when you look in the United States, the event rate is lower than one would expect. And I think this is a phenomenon of more likely than not some degree of enrollment bias. As I mentioned, 
Prolong started in 2009, which was several years after 17P was available, either in compounded form or in other ways. And in many locations, people were already using it. In those locations where we were doing the trial, in addition, I think that there's a set of there were suspicious for us another aspect of bias where women who had a, a worse preterm birth history or who may have be perceived to be at higher risk were potentially steered away from being enrolled in the trial in order for them to receive off-label therapy or more open-label therapy. And we think that this is true for two reasons. First, the number of women with greater than one prior preterm birth in Prolong was half of that in, was in, in MIS. And therefore, you're, you're more likely than not dealing with a milder a group of disease severity in Prolong. And the second finding is that the frequency of having a short cervix was much lower in Prolong than one would expect. If you use the definition of a short cervix as being less than 25 millimeters, only about 2% of women enrolled in Prolong met that criteria. Now, Transvaginal ultrasound measurement of the cervix was not part of the study protocol, but due to the nature of practice in the recruitment sites, well over 70% of patients did have a transvaginal ultrasound prior to randomization and being used as a, and then prior to being randomized and getting the first dose of study drug. So I think some thoughtful clinicians will question progesterone and its applicability to prevention of preterm birth for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't entirely understand the mechanism for how it reduces the risk of recurrent preterm birth. And then when we have several conflicting studies or unclear studies that may, again, further support those thoughts. How do you sort of address those ideas and suggestions for maybe future research to kind of address some of those questions? I think it's challenging in perinatal medicine to have medications and us not have a great idea on what's the clear mechanism of action or a clear pathway for why a medication has a given effect. And unfortunately, there are many examples of medications that we use, and we're not exactly sure how they do what it is that we find them to do. Magnesium sulfate is a great example. Magnesium sulfate was tested in multiple placebo-controlled randomized trials and has shown to have fetal neuroprotective effects. And much like 17P and much like vaginal progesterone in women with a shortened cervix, there are hypotheses of proposed mechanisms of actions to have those therapeutic benefits, but it's not so clear. And I think that's just a reality of what we're going to have within our specialty and within our pathophysiology. We're going to have things that we're not sure how they work. And I think that that's challenging, but that's a reality that we have.
So given the differences and outcomes from several major well-designed studies, what's a clinician to do? How should we use this information you know, next week when we go to the clinic to try to help provide care? I think one of the themes that I'm saying that I'm thinking about is that you know the two largest trials that we have are the MEES study and the PROLONG study, but those aren't the only trials that we have. We also have data from other trials that were done, some of them quite a long ago, but certainly they were placebo-controlled trials. The most well-known meta-analysis that was done was the Kirsch meta-analysis, which was a meta-analysis of five trials, and that really laid the foundation for MIS. So it's not like there are not other data out there to support its use. And in fact, Kirsch, there was a suggestion of overall treatment benefit. And that's really what the Maternal Fetal Medicine Units Network used to inspire them to use the MIS study. So what I would say is that Number one, what clinicians should do is follow the advice of their professional societies. So when the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and the American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists come out with their guidance, I think it's wise for us to follow it. As far as my interpretation of the scientific literature, I think we've got data from the MIS study, which was conducted by the MFMU. There's strong internal validity. It's a trial done. It was placebo controlled. There was rigorous methodologic rigor for the conduct and the analysis of the trial and following up the kids. And there was tremendous pre-treatment benefit. All of these women were from the United States. And for me in Houston, with a very high-risk patient population, I think that the MIS patients are very similar to my own patients. I think the prolonged study also gives us some information about pregnancy loss and a more robust sample of patients that gives me added security related towards safety. What we don't know, and I'm hopeful that future research will come out, is, is that is there a a more specific patient profile or set of characteristics where we can identify women that have a more optimal treatment benefit because there certainly is a cost to 17P. There's an inconvenience to 17P with recurrent injections. And, you know, and it's not only plausible, it's possible that this drug doesn't work in every single woman with with a spontaneous preterm birth. So I think when I put all those things together, you know, I'm continuing to use 17P for my patients. I'm having a discussion with them about the MIS and the prolonged trial, again, targeted to the educational level and the understanding of my patients. And then I'm trying to do shared decision-making with that and the choices on whether to use 17P or not. Thank you. So for for your study group or for other study groups that, that you may know of, what's next? Where do we go from here from a research standpoint? What, what should be or is the next investigation down the road into progesterone and its role in prevention of preterm birth? I'm not aware of any ongoing placebo-controlled trials of 17P. 
for this specific indication of women with a prior spontaneous preterm birth. And I think it's unlikely that a placebo-controlled trial will be done or another one will be done in the United States or outside the United States due to the challenges that I mentioned before. What I think next will happen is that systematic reviews and pooled meta-analyses and potentially individual patient meta-analyses that incorporate Prolong into the existing literature will be performed and published. And I think then there'll be a robust debate of various MFM experts and thought leaders about the pros and cons of 17P use, about the studies about MIS and Prolong. And certainly there'll be discussions about the role of vaginal progesterone for this particular patient population as well. Dr. Blackwell, any other closing thoughts or comments or ideas you'd like to share about the prolonged study? I think one final thought that I have is is just to put prolonged in the context. It did not confirm the treatment efficacy seen in the MEES study but I would not describe it as a failed trial. Anytime you are able to complete a study of this size and magnitude that's placebo controlled, that has longer term follow-up and you're able to finish it, I think that's a major accomplishment. And that's exactly the type of study that we want to have available to inform us on our treatment decisions for our pregnant patients. I think it's essential that we support doing trials, regardless of what their outcome is, drugs or other interventions, so that we can have the most evidence-based options for our pregnant patients. And as we know, it is often a challenge on multiple levels uh, to do research for our pregnant patients. The final comment I want to make is that there is a two-year follow-up of infants that were born from women who participated in the Prolong study, and this you know, will be published once completed and analyzed. And thank you very much, Bill, for the opportunity to talk about the study and the issues around it. Dr. Blackwell, thank you so much for joining us today, taking time away from your weekend and we look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. And join us next time when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.